All right, so Tommy and I are going to start a standing meeting every month where we are going to uh, try to review one paper, but it's really going to turn into at least 10 papers because uh, that's just <laughs> kind of what happens. I'm not sure why. Uh, and so today we're going to be reviewing uh, this paper, Relative Contributions of Preprandial and Postprandial Glucose Exposures, Glycemic Variability, fancy word, and Non-Glycemic Factors to HbA1c in Individuals with and Without Diabetes. Uh, this is a study, this is an analysis of a previous study, and it's cool because I think a lot of us think of HbA1c as this very static marker that is potentially, you You could compare my HbA1c to someone else's HbA1c. And Tommy, you want to tell people why that might not be accurate? Yeah. So previous, um, so one of the reasons why we use HbA1c is it's a sort of an aggregate measure of, you know, weeks or months of glucose, um, circulating glucose. And so then people assume that based on a certain HbA1c, right, that's part of the diagnostic criteria for prediabetes or, or type 2 diabetes. And they assume that based on a certain HbA1c, you have a certain average blood sugar. Um, but when you actually look at, you know, you know, even going back uh, five or 10 years when they didn't, you know, sort of um, continuous glucose monitoring was kind of, you know, not many people did it. When you look at average blood sugar versus HbA1c across a population, for a given HbA1c, you can get nearly 50% variability in average glucose across people with the same HbA1c. So if, you know, my, if, if our HbA1cs were both 5%, your average glucose could be 70 and mine could be 90 or 100 um, at, that, at that same HbA1c because of a load of other factors to do with our red blood cells and their circulation half-life and, you know, how good we are at uh, glycating and unglycating proteins and all that associated stuff. So um, you can't use HbA1c to say this is your average glucose. And I think particularly in those people without diabetes like we really see that from this paper we'll discuss that however within an individual if you track that over time those variables are kind of taken out of the equation so then it is useful for you to track your own hba1c over time because the changes over time do reflect changes in you know glucose dynamics fasting postprandial um and so it's a useful metric for an individual, but it's very difficult to compare two individuals with the same HbA1c and say that you know anything about their, about their glucose metrics. So why, why we like HbA1c is that, like, I, I don't care, honestly, like what somebody's fasting blood glucose is on, like when they just go in for a draw. Like that's not very, that's not a very interesting marker to me because um, it might not be normal. It's, it's just a different experience from their everyday life. Um, it could be low, it could be high. Uh, I mean, obviously, if it's 150, then that's probably a signal. Um, but hemoglobin C is interesting because it is potentially a longer look at blood glucose control. And that's why that value is so enticing. Um, and it, it, for people who don't necessarily know what hemoglobin C is, uh, it is the essentially at the most simple level, if we simplify it to a point where it still has meaning, it is the caramelization or the glycation of hemoglobin inside of red blood cells. So it is the damage that high blood sugar is doing 
to hemoglobin within red blood cells. Red blood cells have around, depending on if you're male or female, a lot of other factors, whether you exercise or not, um, somewhere in the realm of 90 to 120 days um, is your red blood cell life. And obviously that's a, the confounder in the ability for hemoglobin C to be a false positive or a false negative. Um, and, and so one of the one of the things that we're going to be talking about here is some other terms maybe to define uh, postprandial glucose excursions would be the amount that your glucose goes up after you eat something. Uh, and so we've talked about that a ton previously, but say your fasting glucose is 90 and then you go up to 150 after you consume, say, 50 carbohydrates, 20 grams of protein, and 15 grams of fat. I don't know why you'd ever eat 20, only 20 grams of protein, but we'll leave, we'll leave it at that. Uh, and then and then you have a mage, another one, which is mean amplitude of glucose excursion. So these are, these are all terms that we're going to be talking about kind of intuitively, Tommy and I. And mage is like, that's how far on average you're, you're going up and down um, based on CGM analysis. And so what this paper is essentially doing is I, I believe it has CGM data at three or four time points. And then it is comparing that C. So it's really an observationally, they're not, there's no intervention here, correct? No, no, it's, it's just, just not, not, yeah, naturally following people. Yeah. So there's no dietary intervention. There's no exercise intervention. I don't even know if these people, I don't, I would guess they're blinded to the CGM results. I would definitely, I would, I would guess they are. Mm. Um, and so then they are, they're getting a CGM analysis every, I think over, this is a 12 week study. And then they're looking at how that correlates with their hemoglobin C and different other blood markers at post. Um, and so this is a interesting observational design. And so if we think, and then there, there's, they're also, they broke this down into three subcategories. So people with no diabetes, which they're, they're still overweight. The waist circumference is, is, is a little bit high. I believe these are of Asian descent. This is out of Singapore. Or no, Denmark. This but, is Denmark. But the, do, 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 do. yeah. So there it's a multi, it's 11 centers. I knew there, I knew there was something in Asia. So we don't necessarily know the ethnicity of these individuals. Oh, they might tell us. Uh, primarily, so 68% white, 31. So in, interesting. So there's about 75% Caucasian and 30% females, mostly, mostly Caucasian females, it seems like. Um, no, it kind of shifts. So yeah. it's different by group. So it is, more men is. types of diabetes, less in the, in the diabetes, in the no diabetes. And it is, and you see all these P values, like these groups are significantly, significantly different from each other. Um, and you can see this linear relationship with type two diabetes, good reminder that like, you can't see that and say causative, but we can definitely say related um, with uh, BMI and diabetes. And then you also see, this is probably um, on this beginning chart. One of my, one of the most interesting things is you see this linear relationship with, I guess you can't say that, but you definitely see triglycerides going up with type two diabetes status, but you do not see that with total or LDL cholesterol. But you do I, see it with HDL. So HDL decreases across the groups. Yeah. It does. It does. And then you think it, and then, but then I always think it's good. Like to look at, then you see, look at the confounders, look at the lipid treatment, mm. massive, massive yeah. differences between groups. And then, and so this is just looking at who are these people? Who are, who are these populations? So you have 
Um, this not no diabetes is probably your quintessential kind of still healthy Western population. Uh, the type two diabetes group, we're looking at obese, um, high percentage on lipid and antihypertensives. They're hyperlipidemic. Um, they are, are they still normotensive? 128, 130 over 90. So they're, they're, they're getting a little bit higher on blood pressure. Um, and they're fasting glucose. I believe I got these in the comments. So fasting glucose was 105. So still not, still not super awesome. Uh, even for that no. non-diabetic group and then 130 and 155. And then their, their peak glucose after I think this is when they wore the CGM um, for the no diabetes group is 160. So I, we can, I think we can think we can correlate that this group is probably not, you know, you're, you're highly exercising lean athletes. They're, they're somewhere in, the, in, in between. And then we got some, we got some pretty banana land numbers over here. Well, I guess not banana land if you work at a hospital, uh, but 216 and 300 for the groups. And then the mage is probably what you care about most, right, Tommy? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. Um, in in general, it would be nice if I think. Uh, well, I think they also show that you sort of like the postprandial AUC is maybe the most important thing. But mm -hmm. if you had to pick like one number that's easy to pick up, then a, then a mage is a, is a nice summary. Yeah. So the postprandial AUC, I, I just don't feel like that number is going to be intuitive to people. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Whereas like a mage is a little bit like, oh, ha, ha. like when I've talked to people about this type of data, like, like area under the curves are really hard for people to like, like under, understand um, and see, but the, the mage seems like, okay, this is how high I'm going from my baseline. And honestly, the, the non-diabetes group here is, is pretty solid. Yeah, 20, it was fine. 27, like that's good. Yeah. Um, and then you think about this, this uh, type two diabetic, but not super uncontrolled yet. And they, so if they had a fasting of 130 and the mage of 50, uh, they are consistently likely blowing sugar out of their kidneys because mm. um, they're going consistently up in the 180s. And then, I mean, for, for this other group, we're talking about 155 with a mage of 85. So they are, they are consistently above that threshold where we would potentially have deleterious effects would you agree yeah that's not yeah that's not good long term definitely yeah right riding that train um so this is this is who this population is that's that's the the three different populations um and then tommy do you want to talk a little bit of, i think this is the most meaningful graph right here this figure three mm -hmm. where um you want to talk a little bit about what that might mean yeah so <clears throat> Um, the, the correlations they have above are, are, are quite nice to kind of depict what I think is, is partly the overall point, uh, which is that all of this stuff happens on a continuum. Um, and the reason why it's important to point that out is because there's been this big discussion about whether CGM should or shouldn't be used in non-diabetic populations. Um, and it's an incredibly nuanced conversation, but people basically want to be like, yes, CGM is the most important biohacking thing we can possibly do to improve, improve our metabolic health. And the other side, like, no, it's completely useless when, of course, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, and then the main point there being that 
all of this happens on a continuum. You're not like just suddenly diabetic and then suddenly it's important, right? Like to to we know that all of this happens on a, on a normal on a normal distribution, and so like it, it's going it's going to be it's going to be useful to greater or lesser extents for different scenarios along that continuum. Um, but this what this graph is doing is telling you how much um, are they able to predict the variability or the variation, I should say, in HbA1c within each of those groups based on the things that they measured, right? So uh, the, the gray bit at the bottom is the non-glycemic measures, and um, then the, the blues are the different glycemic things that they, that they did measure. So glycemic, so the variability measures, things like MAGE, uh, the postprandial glucose, so what happens to glucose after a meal, and then the preprandial glucose, which is like fasting glucose, like how much do those contribute to, uh, to um, understanding or predicting an individual's HbA1c. And what you see for the no diabetes, there's like, you know, basically uh, two yeah. thirds. I'll interject there, Tommy. Like, I, I saw this immediately and I was like, whoa. Like, I, you, like this, I would have thought postprandial glucose responses would have been highly correlated with hemoglobin C, but what happened? Yeah, so, so well, I, I think this basically is another way of showing what I was talking about before, right? Which is that from person to person, like particularly if you don't have diabetes, your average glucose, like directly correlating with the HbA1c doesn't happen because there's so many other factors that, that make a difference. Now, it doesn't mean they're not important right here. Like those are explaining what, maybe 10, 15% of, of your HbA1c variability. And then if you can, if, if you're interested in tracking your HbA1c, that those are metrics that you have control over, right? Whereas some of those other things, maybe you don't. However, as you go into type 2 diabetes, and this is sort of like essentially controlled type 2 diabetes and uncontrolled type 2 diabetes with your HbA1c cutoffs, basically then you're just being exposed to so much glucose all the time that all the other factors become less important. Um, so this does kind of tell you, right, if you, if you have data about glucose, it has a bigger effect on HbA1c and, and the downstream things, basically as your glycemic variability gets worse. Um, but then there is some proportion, even in those who don't have diabetes, where it is explained uh, by glucose metrics. And those things are controllable to, to a greater or lesser extent. So, so within an individual, once you take out all the things that factor into your own HbA1c, those that's still useful. Um, but just because you're not being exposed to that massive continuous flux of glucose, like those with, with, with essentially uncontrolled type two diabetes, um, it just, it just may, may proportionally makes a much, much, much smaller contribution. Yeah. And, and one of the big things that I think you and I both think of in healthy populations is or the prebandial glucose, we're probably not worried about that too much, to be honest, like, cause because it's not very high. You're worried about prebandial glucose in someone who is like living in those higher glucose percentages where it's going to be. If you're like living at 150 at fasting, right? I'm going to be worried about that. That's a problem, right? And so we're, when, if we think about what's in our control, if you are someone listening to this, this that's healthy, and then the postprandial glucose excursion is something that you'd want to, you might want to think about. And I think you'd want to think about it to me, if I think of hierarchy of things that I care about from a blood glucose standpoint, that's the most, like I'm fasting glucose. I'm not super crazy about hemoglobin C like, okay, cool. Is it how, like, where is it? But I'm not, again, I wouldn't be like, I'm not going to lose my mind if that's at 5.5 .5 or 5.6 or 5.7. Like, like, I think you see a lot of people in the biohacking world kind of 
going bonkers once the, if that gets slightly elevated. Yeah. Um, and I would expect it to get, a, I would actually want it to kind of get slightly elevated if someone's been on a game protocol for like 12 to 16 weeks. Like I'm, I'm expecting to see that. Um, and so one of the, one of the things that is within our control is this postprandial glucose excursion. And if we take this, this ideology and we think about the damage that higher blood glucose is doing, even in pre-diabetics, even potentially in people who are not even on the spectrum of diabetes. Um, I think we've had some pretty interesting research come out of pre-diabetics going back to normal, whatever normal glycemic control. Mm. And, and, and so I'll pop that. I got anything else that you, that, that was kind of the main highlight of this paper, yeah. correct? So yeah, let's just take a look at those correlations um, like the, in the, in the graphs above, just to kind of, um, it wasn't this is the like the one above that these ones like they're just they're just kind of nice to see how each of these things so that so like you have your hba1c on the on the y-axis and then you have these different glucose metrics on the x-axis and you can see like all of them are pretty positively linearly correlated right and so so yeah the exposure is much less in those who don't have diabetes and therefore it's just going to contribute less to your to your hba1c but this stuff, like I said, does exist on a continuum. So it's just, again, making the point that, um, so, so we know that if you go from normal glycemia to prediabetes, you get a certain increased risk cardiovascular disease, um, you know, certain cancers, things like that. And then there's another increased risk, again, as you go into frank type 2 diabetes. But these, these are hard cutoffs we create diagnostically, but they exist on a continuum, right? There's not just like you're, you're, you suddenly, uh, as you tick over from 100 and 109 fasting glucose to 111 all of a sudden you have pre-diabetes but that doesn't mean that you know it, it was still sort of occurring that risk continue like occurs on a continuum so in the lower portions of that there's still potentially some um like leeway or so there's some there's some room that you can maneuver in order to, if you're if you're trying to sort of just make sure that you have long-term good health um, these things still do matter to a degree. And I think that's just the point I'm trying to make against those people who say CGM doesn't mean anything. It's been shown to be completely, you know, there's no evidence that it's useful at all in people who don't have diabetes. I think data like this, and there are there are other studies as well, kind of say, that's not necessarily true. There's still stuff here that contributes. And if you look, the, the most interesting one to me are these, this mage and like this peak glucose value and this mage value. I mean, because here these light blues are obviously going to be those folks who are normal glycemic or, or yeah. whatever, whatever they are. Um, and then the, the dark, a little bit darker blues are going to be your control. And then the, the dark, dark blues. But I, man, looking at this peak glucose value, there are some people in that normal group, right? Who have hemoglobin of potentially four. Look at this cat right here. Yeah, and massive Four. peak glucose. Yeah, and, go, and going up into the almost into the two seventies, like if because this is millimolar per liter. But look at, yeah. I mean, that's that's bonkers. That's that, three. That person may that person may have a red blood cell half life of sixty days or something. They may be like chewing through red blood cells for for some other reason, and that that's the kind of stuff that that we don't have access to for this paper. But like, if you if, even in that, even in this context, like this, those are people like, is this peak glucose of, of I mean, still kind of high, like every I think, I think a CGM might be useful for everybody past this 10 cutoff. Yeah, every like, time, yeah, every time you're getting over and that's where 
something like glycomark has potential utility if people are eating a mixed diet at least right because every time you go above 10 on here is equivalent of 180 uh you divide by 18 to convert them um right then then you know you're getting past the point where the, the where the kidneys can control uh control glucose yeah and so there are a lot of people that are in this study i would say the vast majority it'd be interesting to have some type of percentage because there's only they're kind of blotted out but you can see there's only like five people in the semi-blue and then but there's still a lot in that light blue that are popping high yeah. uh for for whatever for whatever reason maybe and that's it's impossible to know right it's it really is it's impossible to know what that was maybe somebody got hit in the head and this isn't necessarily useful to the athletic population who should, on average, have better glucose metrics than this. But for like an average gen pop, like the light blue, that's kind of where a lot of, you know, the the, the two lighter blues, that's where you're going to be hanging out if you're working with, you know, just average people. Yeah. And I, I think it's also good to know, I can I can link these out in, in the notes, is there's the, if anything, and I think we would, we would given publication bias, there is a extremely positive lean towards cgms and people seeing that data um like there is right now we have to we have to honor that people seeing once we once they essentially get the narrative of uh and and that's where really probably we have to be most important is what kind of narrative what kind of narrative is attached to a cgm like if we're attaching worry around 120 or worry around 140 i think that's potentially really deleterious but if we're you, but if we're using it to identify, okay, what are what are the potential food situations that do pop you above 150, 160, or a mage of 50, and then let's look at, okay, can we add some physical activity around that, or can we lower the carb, like can we lower the carbs amount? Or Is it we, a route into improving diet quality? Like, yeah. you know, the loads of different things you can use to try it, like because a lot a lot of people. A lot of this this kind of just like nebulous stuff. So as soon as you tie it to some harder information that helps them understand what's actually happening in their bodies, you know, you can you can make some you can make some good headway there. And one of one of my big part, like one of my big biggest rocks comes from that Zebedee paper, which which we both talked about kind of ad nauseum is is that the biggest the biggest determinant of these markers is going to be your body composition or your like what kind your overall that, health yeah yeah your overall health it's so i think we can get in and what i see in the biohacker community is like okay let's like let's add a walking treadmill let's let's do like let's lower you have to lower your carbs you have to, you can't eat a you can't ever eat a banana again but really it's it's okay that's that's potentially majoring the minors and that stuff might be helpful in the in the short term but how can you make none of this matter and i think that's what tommy and i care about more is like if we think about increasing metabolic flexibility, we think about really, really getting people to a point where they, this, none of this stuff matters. I, it, getting, getting to a good body fat percentage um, and then having enough muscle on board to be able to dispose of, you know, semi-large amounts of glucose. Mm. Yeah. And so the, unfortunately, that's obviously not the vast majority of our Western population as 91% of them are, currently struggling with some type of central adiposity um and uh there's i believe we looked at nhanes and there was only um i think there were only a few individuals in the male and females who had a higher f minus and lower body fat percentages so unfortunately the vast majority of people are probably going to fall into the bucket where they are going above 
um, you know, where they, they do have a meal out and they don't necessarily know, like, even like you go to Starbucks and you order some liquid Frappuccino thing, um, with like, with no, maybe you got some fat in there. Maybe you don't, but it's a liquid meal. Someone seeing that Frappuccino or whatever that is, that ice mocha popping their blood glucose up to 200. I can be like, okay, all right. What, what, what can I do there? What, what are the things that I can do, um, to change that behavior? Um, and the overwhelming results from the reviews that we do have from the systematic reviews of CGMs is that people like them. Um, the satisfaction rates of these things are, are pretty, are pretty solid. Um, and there also is the data of which I found, maybe let's jump up, let's jump to that. Let's jump to that paper. Um, I believe it's, I think it's by the same author. Um, yeah, here. It's this uh, cohort study, and, and so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. The graphics aren't super awesome. Uh, again, this is another um, another open access. Everything we're everything we're pretty much going to be going through today is open access. Um, and so what they looked at, long story short, is this is, is this a value is kind of the only one that matters. Um, and so they looked at t- people who are pre-diabetes on intake. And over a five to six year period, we're then transitioned to normal glycemia. Um, and they, the only thing that was related to a risk reduction was the two hour postprandial glucose excursion. And to put it into context, their risk reduction for cardiovascular disease and all cause mortality was 50% compared to those who stayed pre diabetic or transitioned to diabetes. In, in terms of the literature on risk reduction for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease, like how how bonkers is that? I mean, it, it's great, and and I mean, you know, it's it, it's funny because to have so this is a what so this is the Whitehall two study, which is basically a, a cohort study um, of people who work for the government in Whitehall in the UK, and they have sort of like it, it's a, it, it's sort of like controlled slightly in terms of the demographic and they started it i mean decades ago they've been following these up people these people up for a long period of time but so you need to follow a pretty average group of people and to see some of them go from pre-diabetic to not pre-diabetic even that is amazing like the, the fact that it's happening um but then you see like if you if you judge pre-diabetes whether you have it or not by fasting glucose or by hb1c those changes don't tell you anything, right? So you could go from pre-diabetic fasting glucose to non-pre-diabetic fasting glucose and your risk doesn't change. But if you go from pre-diabetic postprandial glucose, so that's like your glucose variability, your MAGE, your peak glucose, those things. If you go from, so if, you, if you're pre-diabetic from that and then you go to non-pre-diabetic or non-diabetic based on your postprandial glucose, then you get a 50% reduction in your risk of cardiovascular disease, which is, which is massive. Um, so again, some interesting stuff that comes out of that tells me like if you go uh so there's there's a big thing now in the low carb world which you know we've talked about the paper several times you go you just restrict carbohydrates and then they say you no longer have metabolic syndrome because you improve your your glucose metrics and a couple of other things and you and you haven't changed body composition at all and in my mind that fits with these guys who were pre-diabetic from fasting glucose or hb1c and then became non-diabetic because of those, but didn't see any reduction in risk. And, and I think that's exactly what you're going to see. If you follow those studies long-term, you say, hey, we reverse metabolic syndrome, but we changed nothing about their body composition or their lifestyle or their movement or anything like that. 
I think you're going to get better blood sugar metrics, but you're not going to get a reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. However, if you do improve things in terms of like total glucose exposure, postprandial glucose, and that's probably because you're doing a whole host of other stuff, you start exercising again, change body composition, all that kind of stuff, you know, that's going to come along with it, then you do get a reduction in risk. So I think that this is where focusing on these static metrics, particularly when we're, when we're applying that to studies in uh, populations with type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, you're going to be falsely reassured because that, that number moved, when in reality, you probably didn't do much for that person's long-term health. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I come I come to kind of the same conclusion, which is a little bit scary, and that someone could see this massive reduction in their hemoglobin C or their fasting blood glucose, and it just, might just be an artifact. Yeah. Um, and it's just the get... fact that if you take all the carbohydrate out, right, you're going to artificially lower these numbers, right? These numbers were developed in populations eating mixed diets, so you can't apply them in the same way. I, I would I would actually counter a little bit, Tommy, in that I think if so if we, I think it would all depend on how high. And, yeah. and so that when, when I've looked at this deeply into this literature, if someone is metabolically unhealthy, it looks like they can't handle, regardless of the carbohydrate source, like 30 to 50 grains. It, it, somewhere in that window is going to, just any amount of carbohydrates is kind of going to push them over the edge, right? Mm. And, and so what I, what, I'm, what I think about is like, if you, if you truly do get someone to, to eat, three to 4% carbohydrates over the long term. I think that could potentially result in a risk reduction because chronically their postprandial glucose excursions are going down. And that's probably not being measured in this type of data set. Um, it, and so I, I, I think that, but another part of it is like, how many people can actually do that long-term in the general population? And that's probably extremely, extremely slight. So seeing, I immediately go to like this debate of CGMs, right? Seeing your ability to dispose of carbohydrates better and better kind of gets us out of that fragility mindset of carbohydrates, which you and I have been talking about for a really, 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 really long time. It's like anytime we sell fear of a macronutrient, I, I think anyone who sells fear without nuance to me should just be, I mean, we can get it like we're going to hashtag free speech, hashtag personal freedoms. But if, if, if someone is selling food fear right now, I am, I'm staunchly against that. Um, and, and unfortunately in our current environment, people really do like that narrative. Yeah. Got anything to add Tommy? No, no, that's it. So I'm going to, I'm going to segue. Um, so we've, these are a couple, uh, so you all, y'all can look this up. Uh, this is continuous glucose monitoring as a behavioral modification tool. And, and that's, we're just starting to get the literature on this stuff. And, and we only have a few studies in pre-diabetics. So the amount of like to, to have a hard stance right now, whether CGMs are bad or good and in who is very, it's a very hard thing to take a hard stance on that. Um, and, and I would, I would, I think, well, maybe we bring this conversation to, to probably the most like mind blowing paper that I've read in, 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 a, in a fairly long time. Um, and it goes together with uh, the mind over milkshakes paper with, which if, you, if you've ever read that um, is, is this idea. Um, so we'll finish up with this one and it's glucose metabolism responds to perceived sugar intake more than actual sugar intake. 
And this gets into my uh, fear of fear, um, worry, worry of worry um, in this narrative that we've created, created potentially around both carbohydrates and fat. Um, and, and so Tommy, what happened in this, I mean, dare we say seminal, um, oh, this is one of my favorite papers of all time. And anytime anybody talks to me about CGM, I send them, the, I send them this paper, uh, just because, I mean, it's super, super important. So they had about 30 people with type 2 diabetes, um, and they, uh, did a block randomization. So everybody got both conditions and they randomized them. So that, so there wasn't an order effect and, you know, they came in and they basically got this drink and, and you're shown the nutrition label, the two on the left, a low sugar condition. This thing contains no sugar on, on the right. Which they didn't believe, them. by the way. They did not believe yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. And this thing, yeah, because they didn't think that they consumed some sugar despite mm -hmm. being told that they hadn't consumed any. But then they were like, and then this is the high sugar. The true, in both conditions, the true drink, it's the same drink, is what's on the right, right? But you've been told completely divergent a carbohydrate amount in, in this drink and you're randomized to it and then uh, then they asked them like how much sugar do you think you consumed uh what was your hunger uh, and then they looked at uh at blood sugar um and what you see is that um so this is like the average across two conditions this is the big one it's amazing like if you get like in a low sugar condition same drink right the peak glucose is nearly 20 milligrams deciliter different um and you know at the, at the time two time point it is about 20 milligrams deciliters different so that means that just being told that you're consuming more sugar regardless of the actual sugar content causes a bigger blood glucose peak and then if we right so this is people with type 2 diabetes right so you know maybe non-diabetic people it's not the same reminder this is 15 grams of glucose like just to yeah. just to kind of bring this on board that's that like you throw 15 grams of glucose at tommy and i I would dare to, I would, I don't think our glucose is going to move, um, to be, to be completely honest. Yeah. But if I gave you 15 grams of glucose and told you it was 150 grams of glucose, I would, I would expect to see this, the same thing, right? I'd expect, I'd expect whatever, to see Sammy, that. Whatever, Sammy, you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so this is the thing, right? So, so when we're selling fear in the, in the CGM biohacking community of carbohydrates, What's going to happen is, is it just becomes it becomes this like um, uh, sort of bias verification tool where you think this food has loads of carbs in it. It's going to cause a big blood sugar spike. You get worried about the blood sugar spike that the, the carbs are going to cause and then you eat it and then you get a big spike in blood sugar. But a, so much of that is driven by what you're expecting. Um, and so then if these spikes in blood sugar and the associated physiology that goes with that do matter for long-term health, which I'm sure they do to a degree, even in otherwise healthy people, you're basically creating pathology because of the worry around carbohydrates. And then, and this is the, right. So the group where CGMs can be really useful, uh, people who, you know, to drive behavior change in people who, who aren't otherwise, you know, really engaging with what they're eating, how it affects their body, the average person maybe with, with pre-diabetes or who's getting close to that, right? In that group, a couple of weeks of just understanding how this stuff works, like you said, this emerging data to say that's really important. The group who are actually using CGMs are the um, middle-class, you know, well-off, usually white, um, obsessed with longevity group of people who are actually 
taking basically getting all the negatives out of CGM with my guess is very few of the benefits. Um, and so like this is why it's it's a really nuanced gray picture of like when is this CGM stuff useful outside of pre uh, outside of frank diabetes? And I think it is, but probably not in the group of people who are who are tending to be using it. Yeah, and I always think of just like weight data, just like body composition data. Like, do people need to see all the data? Do they, like, and that's where I think being a, whether you're a medical provider or how, however you're, depending on where you are in the world, um, that's why just when I've seen this done well, it's really focusing in on those time points where people, oh, what happened here? Like, not, not, not just what did you eat, but what happened here? Uh, oh, that, that's a day where I only got like 2000 steps and, you know, I was, I was traveling and I didn't have anything to eat. And I, you, and so, and so like, there's, a, there's, sometimes there's extenuating circumstances that, that talk about, and so talking through like really what, what happened. And then, and then if you can find trends in the data, like, oh, every time that you eat that specific carbohydrate source, it pops up to 180. Okay. Can we, tr or every, like one thing that we picked up is like, um, and this is in a very metabolically healthy population. And we've talked about this in, in a lot of the courses is someone just couldn't have rice cakes alone. They would eat the same amount of rice at a meal at a mixed meal, but they, and, and that would be fine. They wouldn't pop over 130. but if they had rice cakes alone, they popped over to, up to 210. Um, and so for that individual, like any time, and that was even post-training. So so that's, that, that cues us in, okay, you're not someone who can probably eat specifically rice cakes. Can we take that out to things like ice cream? No, because ice cream is a mixed food, right? Um, and so that, that's on the individual side, most people are making you know, 50 to 60% of the decisions in their normal life are the same every day. So if, if you can cue them into something that they're doing might be a little bit off and find a swap with finding a swap without a fragility narrative, I think that can be helpful. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so, so I think this, there's, there's going to be times when this stuff is, is super useful to have just like conversations, get a little bit engaged, understand things a little bit better. And in my opinion, probably nobody needs to use a CGI, like, unless you're using it to track insulin uh, dosing and, and things in type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes. You know, I don't think anybody really needs more than maybe two to four weeks of CGM data. By then, you've probably experienced everything that you're going to be regularly experiencing and will get some idea of the data. Like healthy people who have CGMs all day, every day, months on end, I think that's a pathology. <laughs> Personally. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you're getting. You're getting. Into, you're getting. Both of us. You're getting into like the negatives of the horror ring and those things like yeah. that. Which, which people yeah. obviously like immediately. Ah, the internet yells at you. But I, I think seeing this type of data at like all the time, you're not meant to see this type of data. Like you are you And so, and the reason this is a big deal is like. Tommy and I've talked about this a ton, maybe on maybe not on air, but like we're legitimately seeing like watches that measure your sweat cortisol um we are like the amount of bioinformatics that is coming down the hopper is quite scary to me especially with the wrong narrative um with that fear-based narrative and and i immediately like these results i immediately go like yes i think about the low-carb communities absolute just terror they're terrified like they're terrified of fucking potatoes. Like, I don't know how you can look at the literature and be terrified of potatoes. Like, and then you, 
anyone like I'm just going to be completely honest, like anybody selling like weapons are the devil or anything like anything like that. Like if people believe that narrative, that's what's going to like you're just bringing that into partition. And then I think where Tommy and I really agree is like maybe we should have a mediation analysis in Walter Willett's analysis of red meat. Like this is this is this is I read this paper and I immediately thought of, okay. I want to know inside of those fruit frequency questionnaires, I want to know who's eating red meat and thinks it's unhealthy. I want to know who those people are. And then I want, and I want to compare them to who's eating mass amounts of vegetables and thinking that it's healthy. Cause I like that mediation analysis given the, like, and, and what I'm talking about here is like, cause the, the odds ratios there are insanely small. It's like, yeah. And so to tip that from a covariate perspective to zero, I I think might happen if you had that type of mediation analysis. What do you, what do you think, Tom? Yeah, so I'm, you know, where, where all this, well, first of all, the data quality, I mean, the data is just garbage. But like, if, if we assume that the data isn't garbage, um, then then you would, you, you have this whole um, group of people who basically for decades before the, the, the study starts have been told saturated fat is bad for you. Meat is bad for you. These things cause cause, cause heart, heart disease and, and all this other kind of stuff. And so then in that environment, which is basically baked into media and health books and everything. So like if, you, if you're even remotely interested in health, right? That's this the is the 90s. Like this is, yeah. this is the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And like, it's, it's just everywhere. There's no way you don't, you, there's no way you don't know this. And then in that environment, if you continue, if so, if you care about your health, you continue to eat meat. Like there's this continuous, like, oh, is this, is this causing heart? Is like, is this butter causing heart disease? Versus the people who have cut that stuff out, or dramatically reduced it, at the same time, dramatically increased their whole grains and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. And so, so not only are they, you know, are these populations divergent in terms of what they're eating, and then all the other stuff they do. So people who eat less red meat also exercise more and and all that kind of stuff. Um, and at the same time, they get this virtuous placebo effect of being like, I'm eating the way that Walter Willett tells me to eat, therefore I'm going to be in perfect health. And there's a massive health benefit that comes from feeling like you are Value doing systems. to benefit your health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and so like in that, in that environment, you're absolutely right. I, I think if you, if you found people who ate meat and they're like, I'm eating meat because it's really good for my body. Like you, you find those guys, red meat is going to be like negligible, if not even net benefit in, in some scenarios, at least in my opinion. And there were, there were some, there've been some attempts to do this, right? There's the, there's the Oxford uh, health food um, or health food shop study where they, where they looked at people who's, who shopped in health food stores, right? So, so you've automatically selected a population who are interested and engaged in their health, right? Cause that's the kind of person who shops at those stores. And then you look at omnivores versus vegetarians, completely the same health outcomes, right? So there's no benefit in that group from restricting meat because you've already selected a group of healthy people who think they're doing stuff that's good for their health. And then what they eat doesn't really make any difference, probably because the overall quality of their diet is much better, regardless, plus all the other stuff that they're doing that improves their health and the virtuous benefit of doing that. And, and that's why I think it's so important to look more at the randomized controls trials rather than this, this prospective, I mean, we, if we look at the randomized control trials, you can say that on average, butter compared to every other fat source raises LDL cholesterol. And LDL cholesterol inside, inside of a Western environment, that looks to have a linear relationship with cardiovascular systems. Okay, so for the vast majority of people, reducing butter consumption is probably a good idea. 
you you try to make that with like beef tallow, it's a lot harder to, to create that narrative around other sorts of, of saturated fat. I, I think you can do it fairly easily around butter. You try to create that narrative around lean red meat and you look at the preponderance of data that we have now inside of a healthy whole food diet. Lean red meat does nothing to your blood lipids on average, on average. Are there going to be nothing 10? to your blood lipids, nothing to your blood sugar, nothing to your marks of inflammation? The you know, meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials of meat consumption, all the things that we might care about from a long-term risk standpoint, doesn't make any difference or may even be beneficial. Let alone, like that's just red meat. Yeah. Not, you get into poultry and fish, like try just try to. I don't even know how you would like. And, and so that's what boggles my mind is like, we're reaching so far to create like this cancer narrative around. And so, and, and that's, I think what we're trying to talk about, what we started with hemoglobin C and uh, post-branded glucose responses. And now we're to the philosophical uh, placebo world of, of what people believe in food. Um, and, but, but I think that these, these stories that we have and this fear that we have that seems to be sold by the biohacking community, um, by any dogmatic nutrition, because if you want to sell something, you need a villain. You, you need a villain. And, and I think, and so this is something that I've thought about and I struggled, everyone sees me struggling with this in nutrition course is like the villain that we can kind of all get behind is ultra processed food. Mm. And I'm like, oof. Oof, oof. that's a tough villain, man. Like I immediately go to the socioeconomic, like who's, who's eating socioeconomic, who, who eats that food most of the time? They've uh, done, they've done some uh, recent studies in, in the UK in particular, I think where, where you basically, you look at um, caloric density of available foods versus socioeconomic status. And they're basically, you know, they're linearly negatively correlated. Right. And so that's just like this, this what available plus, you know, what's affordable in that, area and, and all the other kind of stuff that's that's tied into that i think i, I just think i'm not saying by no means am i saying that ultra processed food and energy density doesn't matter i just think we just have to be really really careful with the narrative that we spin on it. um because i do think that there's going to be a break point for processed food just like there's a break point for added sugar just like there's a break point for saturated fat like just like at the population level just like there's a lot of break points for these things there's it's it's probably not zero um and and that's that is a big the the not being zero and and that's a big deal like can process can ultra processed food be part of a healthy diet yes i think that it can um does that mean that you want 60 80 percent of your calories to come from ultra processed food probably not but what are we going to do about that how do we make that normal? How do, like that's the discussion I think we need to be having. Not how bad is ultra processed food. Not it should be like how did we create a system that has, that everyone is eating sixty to eighty percent ultra processed food? Like even me, like I eat a significant amount of calories from things that have a lot of calories because I need calories, right? And and so <laughs> so so like these these narratives that we have around food um, and. Is really is really really important to think about, um, and to to wrap this thing up, he will only even see at the individual level seeing it go down might be important, uh, especially at the individual level. You comparing your hemoglobin C playing bench press with hemoglobin C with other people 
probably not, not, not so, probably a loss. Um, and then really, really, if we're thinking about blood glucose control is where, what's your normal and then how high are you popping? And then what's the, what's potentially the causative factor there? Are you metabolically healthy and you just happen to be spooning down 150 grams of carbohydrates in sugar form alone? Um, or are you not metabolically healthy and literally looking at a grape can drop your mage up a hundred. And so those are just different, legitimately different problems and probably CGM in both of those circumstances would likely be helpful for potential behavior modification. In the former, in the first one, you would probably, okay, how can you eat hundred grams of glucose with something else? Or how can you not eat hundred grams of glucose alone? And then in the second one, uh, if you're so metabolically inflexible that you legitimately can't even have half a banana, how can we get you more metabolically flexible? And then that become then we get into the discussion of exercise, um, glucose dynamics, pulling pulling sugar, pulling energy through the system, changing body composition. How much do we need to change body composition? What is metabolic health? And that's a much more interesting question to me than 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 really any other discussion in this field. Tommy, final thoughts. Um. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think, um, you know, the, the data that we have so far, you know, suggests that, right, and we kind of got into this because there was this, there was this big online argument, is CGM worth doing and people who aren't diabetic and like, it just immediately became back black and white and right, and then creating that and talking about that gray area is where you and I love to hang out. So it, it is a gray area. It is important. It can be useful in a number of scenarios outside of Frank, um, Frank type of diabetes in the, in the world that I often inhabit. I think it has the, right. So all the benefits you just described, I think it also can have a net, be a net negative, particularly when it becomes a real focus point of all the foods that you're eating. And you have people on um, Instagram who are constantly talking about this food has this effect on my blood sugar. And not only have you then, you know, basically created, um, a, a bias confirmation tool to be like, I think this blood sugar is going to, this is going to spike my blood sugar. So then it does. Is that because of the food itself or because of what you expect to happen? And then the other part of that is we know this huge inter-individual variability, right? So if you start posting, Hey, I just ate this super fancy bar um, and it had no effect on my blood sugar, right? Bully for you, but doesn't mean I know anything about what's going to happen to my blood sugar, right? Um, and so I don't think those like public end of one experiments are super helpful for literally anybody else. And it's just worth bearing that in mind because there's so many factors that, that go into that variability in responses to individual food. So loads of scenarios where it could be beneficial, particularly for, you know, like the average person for the like super obsessed health hacker. I think there's a lot of potential for, for negative and that that's just that's the gray area. And those are the different sides of the story. Yeah, ironically, given that you know, only 20 to 30%, if you look at our analysis of metabolic health, 20 to 30% of people are metabolically healthy in the normal BMI, in the normal BMI, only 20 to 30% of people are metabolically healthy and, and probably around eight to 10% of the US population would be categorized as having optimal metabolic health. You would make the, you could make the argument that a CGM would probably be useful in 90 to 95% of the population. And, yeah. and, and so I would make that argument. And then with, with the, the asterisks there, 
that anytime that you move upstream of a problem, you are going to have negative ripples and you have to account for those negative ripples and those negative, negative ripples here being psychological, being food fear, um, being extrapolating your personal experience to other people's experience go like my, my personal experiences on like, and this is, this is where understanding science, understanding individuals versus population data. And that's where all this stuff becomes important. But those are the negative ripples of moving upstream of this problem. But that, that doesn't, those negative ripples don't mean that we shouldn't necessarily think about moving upstream of a downstream problem that could potentially cost trillions of dollars and, you know, like for the first time in the, in the Western world, our life expectancy is going down. Like there's, there's like we've belabored this fact. So moving up, I'm not against moving upstream of this problem. It's just doing that without thinking of the negative ramifications, which unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people using this technology, I don't think they're thinking about those things. And that, that to me, that to me is the most unfortunate. And that's in and of, and then, and then on, on the, on the gram, of course, we just get massive, extreme, polarizing viewpoints arguing with each other. And no one's like, hey, uh, Betty popped up to 170 and she really liked seeing that she popped up to 170 and she, you know, she didn't, instead of eating three tortillas at the Mexican restaurant, she ate two and, and she feels great about it. Uh, can we, can we move on? <laughs> can we, can we, <laughs> uh, let's, let's move on. Um, and, uh, let's, let's all eat whatever kind of tortillas or not tortillas and, and have a good time. Um, yeah. so, so that's where my head's at. Agreed. Great summary. Perfect. Uh, we will see you, uh, next month. Maybe, maybe not. We do this occasionally. Uh, Tommy, where can, Tommy, where can people, uh, find more about you and, and your work, which is, which by the way is, which is just, which is nice. I like, I like your research. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, uh, Instagram, um, at, uh, uh, at Dr. Tommy Wood. Um, my website at Dr. Ragnar, R-A-G-N-A-R, will be updated uh, in the near future, I think. Um, and there'll be like all my podcasts and paper, like, papers. If anybody's like super interested in my CV, you can find it there. Um, so yeah, those two places probably. Yeah, he's also he's also involved in the course on bro research. We're, we're lucky to have him, uh, and and um, you have some some cool research coming, potentially in the hopper on on some of this lipid metabolic health type stuff with with Spencer oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that excited, be... but yeah, we 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 just got the first round of IRB approval for that, so that study is going to start recruiting soon. And that that study is going to whatever way that study crumbles, and I think it's going to crumble. Go figure. I think it's going to crumble in the middle, and it's not going to be a clear winner. <laughs> whatever way that study crumbles, which is looking at lipids and um, potentially active cardiovascular disease risk in people who are eating massive amounts of fat, um, but are otherwise metabolically healthy. And this is a population where we just don't have yeah. any data. Um, everybody says that it's going to be the sky is falling, um, and maybe it maybe it will be the sky is falling. But we, we just honestly don't know. So it's going to be really, really cool um, to see. And it kind of gets at some little bit of these narratives that, that, people, are, that people are talking about um, in this house. So thank you for your time. Um, I don't know where this is going to go. It's definitely going to go in our courses. But it might also go just on the internet and see. Uh, so, so peace out, y'all. Appreciate you. Thanks, everybody. Bye.